Hey there, and welcome to Fax Machine. I'm Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts Emily and Rob. We're scientists, which means it's our job to be curious. But this podcast isn't just about scientific curiosity. Instead, it's about a broader curiosity that motivates questions like, why is the nation of Finland rising out of the ocean? What is the legal definition of a cookie? Why were the Apollo 16 astronauts so gassy? And which animals just really suck? If this is your first time listening, you might notice that our first few episodes sound like they were recorded through a potato. Ooh, did you know potatoes originated in southern Peru and northeastern Bolivia? Focus, Noah! Don't worry, we do eventually upgrade from potatoes to condenser mics. Hang in there, and thanks for listening. Welcome to Fax Machine. How's it going, guys? Pretty well. How are you? Pretty good. I'm pretty excited because this is our first episode of our new podcast. Number one. Yes. Yeah. Woo-woo. And we want to welcome the listeners. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. What's up? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you. So it seems appropriate that we should introduce ourselves, and so I'll get started. My name is Rob. Uh, I am a former grad student, or what other people would call a PhD. I did my uh, research on the Upper East Side of New York in orthopedics, and I finished that, put it on the shelf. And now, I teach science on a bus. <laughs> it's a natural progression. Yeah. Yeah. The job market's rough, guys. Yeah. So, so is traffic, though. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, hi, I'm Noah. I am actually currently doing my PhD in neuroscience. And while I am not trying to cure neurological diseases, I am hosting trivia at a bar across the street from my apartment. So it's a pretty sweet life. And I'm not sure which one I'm better at. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm Emily. I am surprisingly also pursuing a PhD. We're a very varied crowd here. In my case, in probably molecular biology, it's pretty early. These things go in all sorts of directions. But most importantly, I too host trivia. So, you know, honing those skills as well. That is, that is the great connection between us all New York mm-hmm. City trivia pub yeah. hosts. Pub trivia hosts. But this interest in trivia brought us together to make this fax machine podcast. And it's going to be just that, an absolute machine of facts. We were kind of inspired to do this by some of the shows and podcasts that we listen to that, that do this in different ways. Uh, I know we're all fans of No Such Thing as a Fish, who we may someday call our British counterparts. but <laughs> <laughs> Got a dream big. <laughs> <laughs> and other, other such shows that bring together information, tell stories, kind of the new American podcasting dream of sitting next to a microphone and feeling really important. So basically what we've done is make the perfect podcast for us three to listen to. Um, And we don't know if you guys will like it, but we really hope you do. So to tell you a little bit about how our podcast is going to work, I'm going to send it back over to Rob. Okay, so each time we record a show, we'll have pre-selected a theme, something that will join our facts loosely, but each of us will find a unique fact, something that we found really interesting related to that theme We'll share it with each other beforehand to stimulate the conversation, but we'll bring those facts and our A-game 
share it, and then have a discussion about it. And then hopefully we go off on many happy tangents together that you may listen with us. And as we go along our happy paths of facts discussion, if you hear anything that is really cool to you or that you know something else about that we didn't mention that you think is cool to share, we probably really want to hear it. Actually, no, we definitely really want to hear it. That's a guarantee. Uh, (laughs) Feel free to send it over to us via our two brand spanking new social media accounts. Both of them are at Facts Machine Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. So come check us out. And on that note, we'll get started with our first fact from Noah. This week I learned that Vatican City is the most successful nation in Olympic history. Sort of. Okay. So uh, a couple caveats on this. Um, of course, I would be referring to gold medals per capita. So obviously, Vatican City has a very small population, so any meager... Um, Olympic success they would have would be dramatically increased uh, due to denominator issues. Um, However, (laughs) would it undermine what I've just told you if I said that they have never actually fielded an Olympic team? Mainly this is an excuse to talk about a really interesting guy who was born Luigi de Breda Handley. Um, Some sources I saw said that he was born in the Vatican, which I I find unlikely because I looked, I didn't, there wasn't I didn't see any hospitals there, so I'm not sure if that's like possible. What time was this, though? It was also 1874, so I don't know if the time it might have just been like a home birth. But he was the the son of an Italian mother and an American father who, in addition to um, being a sculptor, served as the butler to Popes Pius X and Leo XIII. And growing up, he loved swimming, but because there were no pools in Rome at the time, he, he practiced in the Tiber River. Uh, and so <laughs> later, I think when he was 22, he, he moved to New York City, and then he ended up competing for the United States at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, where he won golds in the 50-yard freestyle, which is how it's it's referenced. But now I'm learning, I think it's actually the 200-yard, or the 4x50-yard relay, mm. where his team won a, won a gold, and also won a gold in water polo. His style of shooting was called the jumping salmon. <laughs> <laughs> I should publicly recuse myself that I am not only a former college swimmer and swimming enthusiast, but I actually coach at the same athletic club. No way. <laughs> that Lou, good old Lou, used to swim for. Yeah. In uh, a great coincidence in the small world, New York City. To get us back on track, if you were to assign his two gold medals to Vatican City, they would be by far the best performing country in gold medals per capita at the Olympics ever. So the actual first place after the 2016 Olympics, I haven't factored in Pyeongchang, but Finland would be in first place with 101 gold medals total, which means 18.39 gold medals per million population. That's the way it's it's listed. So the Vatican has would have two golds, and wait for it, 4,434.59 gold medals per million population, <laughs> which isn't all that surprising seeing as how they have 451 citizens. Um, <laughs> but so it's not entirely fair. But um, I mean, yeah. they also have five point nine popes per square mile, which That's might true, be an yeah. unfair advantage. <laughs> so, um, so after that, after his um, swimming career as an athlete, he ended up becoming a coach. In 1920, he was the first U.S. women's swimming team Olympic coach, and uh, as the coach of New York Women's Swimming Association, he had at least one swimmer on every Olympic team from 1920 to 1936. He published five books on swimming and literally wrote the entry on swimming for the Encyclopedia Britannica. 
he also had a, a critical role in developing uh, something that you know a lot of people might call freestyle, which is just basically the, I, the what is it the the, the forward crawl, right? Front crawl, um, right? Yeah. And that went through several iterations. I mean, some people created. Uh, there was an Australian swimmer who did really well, and then it was called the Australian crawl using this method. Uh, but something Lou Hanley did was to uh, basically increase the number of kicks per. I don't know what would you call it if you're the swimmer per stroke, stroke, I guess. Yeah, kicks per stroke cycle uh, from what was I think three between breaths to eight, uh, and even up to ten. And so using this, I mean, people, his swimmers just got a lot faster apparently. In terms of the evolution of swimming, um, kind of dating back to the earliest days, you would say it starts probably a doggy paddle, um, and then some kind of very rudimentary breaststroke. Um, which then led to the side stroke, which I think people might be familiar with, like hips kind of tilted and a scissor kick. And so the first front crawl, the pre, the proto front crawl was swimming with your arms above the water. Uh, I'm making large monkey motions for, (laughs) for the swimmers and fans at home. Um, but the legs are still doing a scissor kick. And the idea was you get a a burst forward every time that you did one arm cycle. And that was considered the fastest, most cutting edge thing you could do. Um, also with your head upwards. And so this was called, I was named after a swimmer, and it was called the Trudgeon <laughs> Crawl. That was his last name. Not, no response to anything. Trudgeon in the water. <laughs> I mean, by, by modern standards, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, exactly. But this, that was the big breakthrough, was to kind of pair up this scissor kick with an overwater recovery. Uh, and then what Handley did was he, he took it up to the kind of flutter kick that we're familiar right, with now, right. alternating legs and square hips. And it, it was, I mean, groundbreaking in terms of like having a constant motor and improving body position. And so, and swimming still uses that. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the, the evolution of swimming because uh, I, I read at some point that the, the forward crawl and in the broadest sense was, uh, at least is interpreted to have been seen on uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, and that that might be the oldest, oh, yeah. uh, the oldest recorded swimming stroke. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, to be fair, be. when you see Egyptians walking on hieroglyphics, how accurate would you say that is <laughs> <laughs> as a portrayal of so modern true. walking? Like, oh yeah, yeah like, that might be extrapolated. It might just have been they were walking underwater that they, they had that sort of like windmill motion. Yeah, <laughs> I, I forgot. Yeah, swimming. swim like an Egyptian. Exactly. <laughs> So I actually did look for Handley's books, and I found on swimming and watermanship his, okay. uh, his I think, 1919 classic. Yeah. Uh, and I'll just give you some, some tidbits from the table of contents that I found, <laughs> Ooh, okay. which are fantastic. Um, and probably, I, I browsed through it, still hold up to a certain degree in terms of like how to move in the water, but he had chapters that were called Learning to Swim, The Crawl, The Trudgeon, <laughs> The Breaststroke, The Backstroke, Training for competitive swimmers, um, trick and fancy swimming. Ooh. <laughs> then, like swimming dressage? What? I'm not really sure. Because <laughs> I can only access this book through like Google Pages, so I can scroll through it. But yeah. it's on page seventy of this very long book. Yeah. And then he has a chapter on floating, which is three pages long. <laughs> <laughs> floating, <laughs> just do it. <laughs> Two empty pages. <laughs> and then college water polo. Soccer water polo rules. <laughs> what? Which, Wouldn't that be water I can, soccer? Can only imagine his water polo with your feet. <laughs> oh, that's that's true. Well, I imagine which, the extra kicking could be helpful with that. <laughs> must be the most fun game in the world. Yeah. For people. Just a, like a snorkel just tied up your body to your legs. <laughs> and finally, my favorite: plunging for distance. 
which was a competitive Olympic event. <laughs> yes, it was. For several Olympic cycles in which the rules were you dive off a platform into oh, water. swimming. I thought this was going to be like like plumber. Like, like the plumber Olympics. Yes, it was the event before snaking oh my for gosh. distance. <laughs> but the, the plunge for distance where the Olympic record is still held by a swimmer from the team that I currently oh, coach wow. at the New York Athletic Club. Wow. Um, was an event where you dove off a platform, held your body in a tight, straight position, and were not allowed to move at all or breathe until your body came to a rest. <laughs> yes. I believe it was however far you coasted within a minute underwater or however long it took you to get to the surface, Ooh, okay. whichever came first. So I didn't know that there was a time limit on it, but yes. that, that makes sense. Yes, there was, which is probably a good thing. Well, let me um, let me try to wrap this up. So he uh, he went on, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he co- he was the first U.S. Olympic uh, women's swimming coach. Uh, particular, some of his uh, most famous people are Thelda, was it Blytree? Is that how mm-hmm. we pronounce that? I think who won three gold medals at the 1920 Olympics, and of course also uh, Gertrude Aderley, who was the first woman to cross the English Channel, and I believe also did so two hours faster than any man ever had. A fun fact about Thelda Blytree. Sure. Um, she was arrested in 1917 for swimming in the nude because she removed her stockings in oh, order to swim no. more quickly. Oh my and it was seen as indecent. And I wanted to just end by saying Vatican.com. This is the major Vatican tourism website. Um, and it, it posted a, an article that was uh, apparently just basically plagiarized from a post that was intended to be humorous saying that Vatican had fielded an Olympic team in 2012. They said Portugal uh, lost to Vatican City in soccer two to nothing because they were, quote, afraid it would be blasphemous to score on God's team. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if they fielded an entire soccer team with players and subs, that's like a large percentage of the country's population I, on the field. I will <laughs> say, there actually is a, a Vatican uh, national soccer team, and they play uh, mostly the uh, teams of other really small nations like Monaco and stuff like that. But there's also a Vatican City soccer championship with eight teams, including, for example, the Swiss Guard, FC Guardia, and they play against the police team and also the Museum Guard team. <laughs> so, so it's That's really wonderful. just like basically different like workers. It's like a you softball know, league. Yeah, exactly. It's basically <laughs> like a, a you know, like a summer softball league. And like, <laughs> between like the people who do different jobs, they like get together uh, and then they play sports against each other, which I think is really sweet. All right. So now we're on to fact number two, Emily. So, uh, what I learned was that Shiso Kanakuri holds the record for the slowest completion of an Olympic marathon with a time of 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. That was That's about 54 years longer than I thought it was yeah. <laughs> You thought it was going to be 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds long? I feel like just saying the record was all quite a record in and of itself. Um, so the details of that. This occurred during the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. And basically, he had a lot working against him from the onset. Uh, he and his companions had a very long transcontinental railway trip to get there. He wasn't adjusting to the local food very well. And also, for some reason that I still cannot fathom, 
Uh, at that time, it was thought that perspiring while exercising was actually very bad for you. So people <laughs> typically did not consume any water while doing sports, especially during running marathons. And again, as you'll see, this caused a lot of problems. Um, so all this together was basically bad news bears. The poor guy ran 16 miles into the marathon. Uh, he passed out and was taken in by a local family. Uh, the following morning, he just went back to Japan, um, didn't mention anything to the Swedish officials, just out of sheer embarrassment, and was actually thought to be missing by the Swedish government for the next 50 years, <laughs> even though, even though, my favorite part of this, he competed in two subsequent Olympics. <laughs> so so they apparently just stopped watching after so, they hosted their own. Someone, <laughs> they must have. Someone could have known. They could have. But this is they... clearly a breakdown of communication between the missing person's office and like whoever was at the Olympics running against Clearly. Them. They just didn't think to give him a ring. But anyways, as it turns out, he wasn't missing. He was actually home in Japan. And while he was there, he established a university relay contest uh, in the country that actually popularized long distance running. So he was a pretty big deal in terms of, you know, his chosen sport in his home country. But then in 1967, when he was 75 years old, the Swedish National Olympic Committee actually contacted him to participate in their 55th anniversary celebration of their Olympics. And they asked somebody, him to come somebody back. Somebody eventually figured it out. Somebody eventually figured it out. They, 55 years later, someone told him that he wasn't missing. Um, <laughs> and, like, that must be relieving yeah, to hear. He <laughs> weight off his shoulders. <laughs> So they invited him back to actually finish his marathon. Um, and at 75 years old, he did just that. He went to Sweden, ran the rest of his race, and was quoted as saying, it was a long trip. Along the way, I got married, had six children, and 10 grandchildren. Oh, that's so, <laughs> so great. That's pretty sweet. That's a, now, now, my question is, did they make him start from where he collapsed? They did. They did. He resumed right where he picked off. That, or is, left off that was a pretty good move. That is That's classy. Great. Yeah. But come to find out, the 1912 Stockholm Olympics marathon was not the only marathon that was characterized by misfortune, as well as some scandal and chaos. As the first example, in the first revival of the Olympics in 1896 in Athens, the bronze winner, which I love, this guy didn't even come in first. He came in third. He was disqualified for being carried on a wagon part of the way. So <laughs> apparently that wagon was still a little too slow. <laughs> didn't actually win. In addition, the next Olympics after that in Paris was actually during the Exposition Universelle, a uh, World's Fair, and that Olympics was particularly poorly planned um, to the extent that in competitors, a lot of them actually didn't even know they were competing in an Olympics until after <laughs> it had happened. Um, but among the scandals that occurred during that Olympics was that the, the winner of the gold medal, Michel Theato, and I apologize, I don't speak French, that's probably very wrong, um, but he was actually from Luxembourg, so that was the first scandal, but he ran for France. Um, but also, <laughs> So uh, the American runner who did the best in that race, Arthur Newton, he came in fifth place, reported afterwards that he hadn't actually seen any of his French competitors pass him in the race. And by the time <laughs> he arrived at the finish line, they were all just kind of standing around looking very refreshed. <laughs> My absolute favorite, though, of these marathon-related disasters was in the St. Louis Olympics, which Fred Lors would have won had he not rode 11 miles in an automobile, <laughs> as they found out. In addition, his competitors didn't fare too well in their own ways. Uh, Len Tao of South Africa, that poor guy was chased off the course by wild dogs. Uh, <laughs> St. Louis. <laughs> in St. Louis. Felix Cadavajal, my favorite competitor and the one who I think I most relate to, okay. uh, he came from Cuba. He firstly lost all of his money gambling in New Orleans and had to hitchhike from there to St. Louis oh, to even compete, which honestly was probably a good warm-up. Um, yeah, warm 
<laughs> yeah, everyone else is doing it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but ultimately, he didn't finish because he stopped off to munch some apples and then took a nap under a tree. And the last story that I wanted to share was actually at the 1908 London Olympics. Um, so that Olympic marathon actually began at Windsor Castle and then ran from there to the West London Olympic Stadium. And at the time, they had been typically running Olymp- uh, marathons rather around the range of 25 to 26 miles, as that's the distance between Athens and Marathon, where the first marathon actually took place. But the London track included this typical 26 miles. And in addition to that, a 385-yard length of track to position the finish line right in front of the Queen's box for her viewing pleasure. The only issue that happened with this was that the first place winner, Italian pastry chef Durando Pietri, was so exhausted and delirious by the time he reached the finish line that he actually got lost and turned around, um, ended up running in reverse, and actually had to be dragged over the finish line, (laughs) poor guy, and was promptly put on a stretcher once he got there. (laughs) But... In terms of the modern marathon, that's why the marathon length now is 26.2 miles. That's great. 385 yards. That's really yards. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's how that happens. It seems like a big takeaway here is that people were not prepared to run marathons when they're asked <laughs> no. to in the early 1900s. No. And <laughs> also, you should drink water. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's funny. You mentioned <laughs> this guy who got to the end and then he you know, just basically fell to pieces because the mm. legend, which probably didn't happen of the guy at the uh, legendary event that the marathon race commemorates is so it was a town marathon in greece uh and then the the greeks or the athenians or whoever had just beaten the the persians in the legend Phidippides runs all the way from marathon to athens which is apparently approximately 25 miles if you believe it um to announce that the the persians were defeated and then he promptly died so, Man. so clearly human beings were not meant to run this distance. So his last words were, we won, guys. Yeah, his last words were Nike, which means apparently victory in, in Greek. And that's where, of course, the, the company gets its name from. So, uh, but just to get to the point of whether or not humans are meant to be doing this. So, so a major barrier in, in marathons is, is getting somebody to do a marathon under two hours. Um, and I, I believe that the fastest ever is on the order of like two hours and two minutes, maybe 45 seconds, something like that. Basically, Nike set up this whole thing where they got these runners to like come and train specifically with the purpose of getting like a sub two hour marathon. And this wouldn't be an official time. This was literally just you know, they were going to have like these uh, like pacers who like that would disqualify your time if it were in a real event. Um, it was on, I think, just like a regular like track even like i'm not 100 sure but basically they were trying to get like under perfect conditions could they get any of these th- three like hyper elite distance runners to get sub two and after all this effort they missed out like just barely i i even think it was like maybe 15 30 seconds i can't quite remember what his time was um but it just speaks to how incredibly difficult this is and then now after like you know over a hundred years since the you know first olympic marathon but uh, you know, thousands of years since this actual marathon and uh, the start of it all, where somebody died, and then later in the 1900s, people were just passing out delirious, yeah, at the end and taking naps and getting poisoned. Um, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty impressive that you know human humans have gotten this far. Absolutely. And just based on how humans fared in the early Olympics, it makes a strong case that we like that maybe that guy, if he existed, could have died. Like <laughs> it really it's sounds true. like it. Really it's lends true. a lot of support I mean, if you, to the if story. You just fit, if you fit the curve, just from like passing out to like a hundred years later now, like doing it almost under two hours. Like I bet if you go all the way back then to like, you know, 100 BC or whatever the hell that was, um, you might actually get to death. I mean, to be honest, if you took 54 years, you probably would have been fine. 
I think that's, that's the way to go. That's true. It's, it's <laughs> slow and steady. Slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> I think Aesop would have been around of that time, and his fable about the tortoise and the hare should have been, uh, you know, widely read, and it definitely would have helped this guy yeah. out. Wasn't it the tortoise and the French marathon runner? That was the, the original. <laughs> <laughs> that, was that was it. It was uh, <laughs> prescient that he would have known about France. But <laughs> Hearing about all these marathon runners who may or may not have actually completed the track always mm. kind of jogs my memory. Uh, to... Stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Carry on, carry on. Over to the, the, the famous story of Rosie Ruiz, um, who you may be familiar with, was a female runner in the 1980 Boston Marathon. Boston Marathon, one of the most heralded kind of U.S. marathons. And so she finished first uh, by a considerable margin and was not like a particularly well-known runner at the time. She made headlines, she was interviewed, and it came out eight days later that someone who had been riding on the the T on the Boston Metro said, I saw her <laughs> during the marathon <laughs> so on the subway. <laughs> and apparently she had left after a few miles taking the subway through Boston, gotten off about a mile at the end of the course and slipped in with less than a mile to go and ran the finish so that her time was somewhere in a almost believable range of just over two hours, like two hours and 20-something minutes maybe. And she made it eight days as the kind of uncontested champion. There were a lot of questions about who she was and where she came from. And then that title was stripped of her. So she was no longer... Uh, and it is like now widely recognized as the largest fraudulent marathon runner well, in modern yes. history. Well, of course, there's another um, very famous Boston Marathon woman, uh, Kathy Switzer. She registered as a woman, which was not allowed in the Boston Marathon, but due mm. to a like clerical error, basically. So somebody ran on and tried to like rip her race number off. Her boyfriend, who was running with her, like managed to fight him off or something, and she went on. And so what, what I find really interesting in that story is that she finished with four hours and 20 minutes, but she was actually an hour behind the first female finisher, Bobby Gibb, who ran unregistered. So she wow. wasn't even the first woman in that race to finish a marathon. <laughs> That, not that. that that takes anything away from her story. <laughs> she also re-ran uh, this past year. Yeah, I saw the 50th that. Anniversary. Yeah, the, yeah oh, that wow. was a really neat thing. Yeah. You want to know something else about uh, the Olympics and women's sports? Sure. Absolutely. Lay it on. So there are some sports in the Olympics that are women's and some sports that are ladies. So the most uh, commonly <laughs> noted is, is the figure skating. So it would be ladies and men's figure skating. That's right, it things. is. Of the 14 winter sports contested by women at the Pyeongchang Olympics... Actually, eight are called ladies sports, and six are women. So the, the ladies sports are alpine skiing, ski jumping, speed skating, and snowboarding. Uh, there's another thing. Uh, the the founder of the Olympics, um, Coubertin, right? Yes. You're the French yes. expert here, Anne. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> Don't pin that on me. Uh, he, he, he was, I mean, kind of a dick. Like, <laughs> just yeah. in this from this one quote. He said, the Olympics were created for, quote, the solemn and periodic exaltation of male athleticism with female applause as reward. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that qualifies. He, he, he also said, he went on to say, women were biologically ill-suited to sports and, quote, not cut out to sustain certain shocks. The, the sentiment also, to flip back to swimming, which I love yeah. to do, when, when butterfly emerged as a stroke, it used to be a, a from variant. The, from the cocoon. From the cocoon. <laughs> But it was it was during the thirties that, that swimmers started using their arms over the water and it was much faster than traditional breaststroke. And so some people used it to their advantage. Men did and women did not because 
the sentiment was that women were not capable of such a, a, a strong and powerful motion. All right, do you guys mind if I have one more on this topic? Go for, Go it. for it. Okay, so actually, uh, the Olympics that we know and love today were actually not the first attempt to revive the ancient uh, Athenian Olympics. Um, and in fact, there was a, a Greek businessman, who, his name was Evangelist Zappas, and it was known as the Zappas Olympics. Uh, and they were, I think, 1859 through maybe 18, like, 89, something like that. It actually went for a while. Just, I mean, in, in the 1800s, this sort of classical ideal of the Greeks as being this, you know, the people who created democracy and everybody got really obsessed with this romantic notion of, of the Greeks and Greek ideals and mm-hmm. things that the Greeks did, like, you know, the Olympics. And so there had been a lot of chatter about reinstituting this really cool tradition. And so this guy was the first to make it happen on a, on a large scale. The games consisted of races around the stadia, either once, twice, or seven times. There was discus throwing, horizontal and vertical, jumping. The categories were high, far, and over a moat. (laughs) (laughs) And there's another quote. Uh, It is expected that the next celebration in 1863 will be more imposing than this one, which took place under many unfavorable circumstances and yet may be regarded as a tolerable success. That is a warm review. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. So this one, it went, basically the, the gist was that it went okay. The next one was like, apparently like this wild success. And then the one after that was kind of a bummer. But it ended up dying out. And then just, you know, maybe 20 years after that or so, after the last one, um, Coubertin uh, reestablished mm. the, the Olympic Games that we have till today. Mm. There we go. And we'll wrap up with what I've learned this week. And this is an interesting fact that the first Olympics to be televised were actually the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And at the time, the only country in the world that had any sort of broadcast television network was Germany. Oh, good. (laughs) So we've been self-serving there. Uh, But these Olympics were notable for many reasons. They were the last before the longest break in the modern Olympic history. But these Olympics were, uh, they've been dubbed afterwards, obviously, as the Nazi Olympics. And they were used very kind of powerfully within Germany and in Europe as a, as a bit of propaganda. Before we move into that, that was 1936. The first Olympics to actually be broadcast and televised widely, including in the United States, was 1960. Wow. So it was 24 years until another Olympics um, was, was really... Yeah, yeah, so huh. um, it, it really spoke to the infrastructure, engineering, and like kind of the work that went into the planning, which I think is just such a huge part of these Olympics. And there's so much kind of documented and written about the 1936 Olympics and the role they played in the, the Third Reich kind of rising and continuing to hold on to power, its relationship to other countries. And so on the one hand, there's this internal propaganda of like the strength and virility and power of the the German athlete, and that was largely manufactured uh, by Goebbels, who was in charge of their propaganda, but also in large part kind of by their the coverage they had in terms of media. And so there were cameras at every sporting venue. There were cameras um, in the streets at the opening ceremony, and it was broadcast in closed circuit television to houses in Berlin, in Potsdam, and in select other kind of wealthy. Uh, television houses or watch stations so that Germans could kind of gather and watch their country in what was a very dominant showing. They they led the medal count uh, by almost 30 medals over the next country, which was the United States. And so the U.S. actually, leading into this Olympics, there was already strife politically in Europe uh, because of this regime. And many countries thought about boycotting 
the 36 Olympics, but ultimately um, the United States, the United Kingdom, and then other countries following in suit did not. And so we all nationally participated, which in a way validated the German government and the Olympics and may have been, been a leading cause of their like ability to hold on to a peaceful legitimized, power. yeah. Yeah, so uh, a morally kind of questionable Olympic presence for us. And so I actually drew a lot of my information on this fact from the, the book Boys in a Boat, which I don't know if you guys have read. No, I haven't. Really, really interesting story. Focuses largely on one pseudo-orphan, a, a child who was like estranged from his parents when he was 15 and then fought, fended for himself, got into college, paid his way through by working jobs, and then made it onto the 1936 Olympic men's eight uh, rowing team. But the alternate chapters and parts of the book described the German propaganda machine and like the amount of time and effort and resources they were putting into making Germany look absolutely perfect in every way. Uh, there's one particular figure, Lenny Reifenstahl, who was very instrumental to the, the creation of this image of, of the German Olympics. And interestingly, she had a kind of uh, contentious relationship with Goebbels. And there's one story in Boys in the Boat of they were standing at the opening ceremonies and she had put a camera right in front of Hitler. And Goebbels didn't like it because it looked out of place. It didn't match the symmetry and it didn't look beautiful. And so he forced her to get rid of it and she refused to get rid of it. And they got into a fight during the opening ceremonies that almost kind of derailed the opening ceremonies because of their like these huge personalities. And ultimately she kept it, but like had to like lower it slightly. I see. Made some kind of compromise. So she won a little bit. Yeah. She she was very strong willed in in the way that she maneuvered through the Nazi party, actually, like being in in kind of the inner circle. I actually have a little bit about uh, Lenny Reifenstahl, if you guys don't mind. Um, She, of course, famously made the film of the Olympics appropriately called Olympia, that was supposed to highlight, you know, sort of the German excellence at those Olympics. And. Uh, it was interesting that things like didn't absolutely go to plan. Uh, but for, first, I want to say, it, it, from what I read uh, just about this fact, Hitler apparently didn't ha- he didn't want to host the Olympics, and Berlin was actually awarded the 1936 Games uh, during the Weimar Republic, like before he came to power. But then, when he came to power, he was like, "All right, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think." Like all right, probably simplifies oversimplifies the actual situation. <laughs> but I mean, I, I read a little bit about it. Was it was a very cavalier. Man. It was basically <laughs> awarded to the. It was awarded to Berlin under the, the the previous government, and he 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 recognized the opportunity. One thing in particular about there's well, there's a couple really interesting things about Lenny Reifenstahl, but right in her movie, she like dedicates more than a few really long shots to the let's just say physical form of American Glenn Morris. But she uh, apparently had had she had a an affair with Glenn Morris. She said, "Never before had I experienced such passion," and <laughs> apparently she <laughs> forgot. She neglected. I don't know about forgot. She she didn't film Morris's victory in the decathlon. Um, I'm sorry, in one of the decathlon events, the five thousand meter. Uh, so <laughs> he he agreed to run another five thousand meter race the following day just for her to record for the film. He, because of his experience with this Lenny Reifenstahl, this director, um, he actually went back to the Olympics and then pursued uh, a role as an actor. And he actually was the uh, leading role in Tarzan's Revenge in 1938. Um, But but just getting on the point of uh, people coming back from that Olympics and trying to break into Hollywood, Lenny Reifenstahl actually came to New York in 1938 to try to jumpstart a career in Hollywood, but right after she got there, the news broke of the, the horrors of Kristallnacht, right? Just like five days after she got there. And she 
insisted to everyone who would listen that it wasn't true. Even after it was confirmed to her by the German consulate, she basically said, no, I'm going to stick it out until, quote, it was no longer in the headlines, which I think was taking a bit of a short-sighted view of how long this sort of issue <laughs> would last. Um, so uh, She's still waiting. <laughs> needless to say, needless to say, it did stay in the headlines, and the invitations that she had received from like Hollywood big shots uh, dematerialized, except for one. One stu- major studio boss still agreed to meet with her. You guys know who that was? Walt Disney. Oof. Oh, yeah. dear. Which sort of fits into that. It's not great. <laughs> that, it's not uh, great for the Disney legacy. <laughs> prevailing. Yeah. You know, Disappointingly consistent. Exactly. Anyway, um, I also want to say, just, just to wrap that up, that when the war broke out uh, between Germany and Britain, the British actually seized copies of, uh, of her movie about the Olympics, Olympia, and they recut it into training footage for physical fitness for their own recruits to go fight Germany. Possibly its most enduring legacy was, you know, basically showing British recruits how to get in shape and go fight the Nazis. So it's gotta be disappointing go. from an artistic point of view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't sympathize. We we like the bits where they're doing push-ups. Yeah. <laughs> Just to have the pinnacle of your artistic career be turned into essentially workout videos on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my I god, if this if this got turned into like a workout audio thing on YouTube, I think that would be peak podcast. <laughs> I think that's probably, probably the best we can hope for is getting turned into a workout video. Just something that somebody can listen to at the gym. I'll jump on the Tarzan bit because I'm very interested in Olympians becoming Tarzan um, as, as a personal hobby. Yeah, obviously. Um, of course. In 1924 Olympian by the name of Johnny Weissmuller, who holds the distinction of the first man to break a minute in the 100 meter freestyle... Um, he came back and he starred in, I believe it was 12 consecutive Tarzan movies. He was Hollywood's Tarzan for the next 10 years or so, probably wow. until... Did he um, release more than one movie a year? They, they produced about one movie a year. <laughs> but he, so he's from the 1920 uh, and 24, and I believe 28 Olympics, but also in the 1928 and 1932 Olympics, another swimmer, Buster Crab, mm. um, who grew up swimming in Hawaii... <laughs> We're just not going to mention Buster, Buster Crab. We're just going to let that one slide. One of the most overlooked potential rap names ever. The <laughs> <laughs> Busta, he was an impressive swimmer in his own right in the longer distances. Uh, and he was cast as a movie Tarzan. Didn't really stick, but he actually found a legacy in movies as Buck Rogers. Oh. So he was in the hmm. Buck Rogers franchise. Interesting. And so uh, swimmers and Olympians becoming Tarzan probably like very naturally because of their like peak physical fitness. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, Rob, you're looking great. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> if Hollywood is listening, I don't know if you can hear the six pack. But... <laughs> oh, only six? Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, there's as as a follow up. Michael Phelps was originally to be cast for the most recent Tarzan movie <laughs> until he did one screen test, and it was determined that he really just couldn't deliver. The lines, that was which nuts. I'll remind you, are Tarzan. <laughs> like, me, me Phelps. Oh, damn. <laughs> and I love the guy to death, but it just wasn't, wasn't made for the big screen. But, but Johnny Weissmuller, to me, his most enduring kind of characteristic was breaking a minute in the 100 freestyle. But to everyone else in the world, he was the Tarzan that gave us the Tarzan scream. Which we all... You wanna... What what does that sound like? I think that was the best approximation we're going to get out of this group. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, 
had no influence on it. It really didn't have anything to say about it either. <laughs> but it is now kind of synonymous with Tarzan. So, wow. good job, Johnny. Good job, Johnny. Uh, other interesting follow-up on television in general. Okay. Um, so, television was around in the as early as the 1920s uh, in the UK. A guy named Baird had demoed television um, to Royal Society to show that it was possible to, to show live images. Contrast was a big problem in early television, and so human faces did not make it. Like, human faces did not have high enough contrast. So his first television uh, was a, like, a marionette dummy that was painted up with very high <laughs> contrast, so it looked yeah. like a face. That was in 1926. The late 20s in the U.S., there was a lot of testing going on. The American Philo T. Farnsworth credited in the United States as having the coolest name of all television creators. Uh, he lived out that's in... Fun. That's funny, because isn't that the name of the, the professor on Futurama? Is it? I can't remember. Isn't it... Farnsworth? Isn't, and don't they have a bunch of, like, in the in the show Futurama, don't they have a bunch of uh, relatives throughout history? Actually, that's correct. Oh, Philo T. Farnsworth? Yeah. It is, that's his name. Yeah, it is. That's impressive. I did not know that. Nicely done. That is that is the wow! I'm really impressed myself because I didn't even know it was exactly the same name. His name in Futurama is Philo Taylor Farnsworth. <laughs> and per the show, he was also the inventor of childhood obesity. <laughs> <laughs> you hand in hand. <laughs> Gosh darn! <laughs> but Farnsworth was kind of the American who was leading the charge. And so Baird was in the UK where he developed his technology, but he actually went to Berlin in Germany and set up that original closed circuit television network sponsored by the German government before he moved to France where he started France's first television company. And so networks like NBC already existed in the United States in the 20s, but they were primarily radio networks. Um, and they didn't really get around to broadcast television for many years after. And uh, one statistic I thought was really uh, and kind of useful for figuring out like when broadcast became a thing, in 1948, following the war, there were less than one million television sets in the U.S. Wow. Uh, by 1951, there were well more than 10 million. Wow. So it was in that kind of period where television became a, a middle-class staple, as evidenced in the uh, uh, documentary movie Back to the Future, um, <laughs> where houses everywhere could have their own color television if they wanted. So. Which is absolutely a primary account. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was a first-hand retelling of life in 1955. <laughs> okay, so uh, if there's nothing else, I have eight questions vaguely related to this topic. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Shoot. And so I'll go through it. Questions are all about broadcast firsts. Okay. So we'll see the history of broadcast here. The first question I have for you guys is, which president do you think gave the first televised State of the Union address? So I would say that there's would famously the Nixon-Kennedy debate. So I would say JFK because he was... But I don't know, because if, if the elected. debate would have been with JFK and Nixon, would maybe the first one have been JFK? But he, but Nixon was like so anti-TV, according to that story. Right, but that well, was... Let's go JFK. That debate was prior to JFK's election, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So I would say JFK. Okay, let's go JFK. That's my thought. JFK. So that would have been 1960? Whenever that would have been. Yeah, so it's about <laughs> 12 years earlier. Oh, oh no. no. Harry Truman oh, God. gave the first televised Way to debate. drop the bomb on us. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Man. <laughs> okay. But Harry Truman gave the first Seamless. televised State of the Union. At the time, it was called the Annual Message. Oh, good. Okay. Which is 
something that sure. they decided wasn't super catchy, I guess. Yeah. Um, right. It was 1965 when LBJ decided we should do this at night so people can watch it at home. It used yeah. to just run in the middle of the day like a C-SPAN <laughs> program. <laughs> Uh, but so LBJ made it like a, a thing that you like. Get well, I mean, it, because of your previous fact, I mean, nobody would have watched it if it had been at a time where people could watch TV anyway, because they didn't have TV. That's, that's true. In 1947, <laughs> probably went to like two people. Yeah. Like, wow. There was a lot working against that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My second question. So the Super Bowl halftime show has been televised basically every year that the Super Bowl has been around. But in what year did they actually have a contemporary or pop music act oh, for the first time. I would guess sometime in the 80s. The 80s? Because <laughs> there was the Beatles. I mean, like... <laughs> the Beatles... But would you call them pop, though? Yes. Yeah, if if there was a Super Bowl mm. in the 60s and the Beatles played at it, that, I would, right. that would count. I right. Here's I the other thing I just remembered because he gave it to me, that the Super Bowl only happened after the AFC and the NFC merged, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which was when? That's all of my sports knowledge. <laughs> Okay. That's beyond. Mine, I would say so we're in trouble. Was that like the seventies. That was the seventies. Nineteen sixty-seven. Okay, so nineteen sixty-seven. Okay. <laughs> so presumably that implies his question implies that the first one wasn't a contemporary musical act. That's correct. So, okay. and I'll, so when was the I'll go so far as to tell you that the record for the most Super Bowl halftime performances belongs to the Grambling State Marching Band, <laughs> who did it six times. They're amazing. Are they though. I've actually seen them. I've seen and them so, before. So maybe the right direction okay. this question should take is if I give you the year, do you think you okay, can give, give me the, the year? Band? Give me the year. So it's 1991. Later than expected. Yeah. Britney Spears. Not yet. That's, That's too early for Britney. No, wait. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even born in. Uh, and Michael Jackson. <laughs> No, he has done it several times. Oh, Madonna. This band Madonna. reunited. That was good. Walk it back. This band reunited recently and has has toured again in the last couple of years. Oh God! And they just took it step by step. Rob, <laughs> did you yes. think that was helpful? All right, so the band was Boys to uh, No, no, it's not, <laughs> no, it was not Boys, Boys to Men. It was New Kids on the Block. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was New Kids on the Block. <laughs> Our next question. MTV's first music video aired at 12.01 a.m. August 1st, 1981. What was the song? Video killed the radio, radio star. star. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you like that harmony? That was all Boy, I hope that was harmony. <laughs> that was it. That was the Buggles as they... The Buggles? Yeah. Kind of grossly mis... Like, estimated what video would do to radio. (laughs) But I feel like podcasts and radio have had this incredible renaissance over the last, you know, few years where MTV... I mean, if you've seen it lately... (laughs) I haven't, and neither has anyone else. Uh, Number four, fourth question. SNL debuted in 1975, and their first host was a man who had famously observed, think of how stupid the average person is. And then realize that half of them are stupider than that. <laughs> I, I actually know who this is. It's George Carlin. Exactly. Ah, yeah. that was my guess. Cool. Mm. Nice. Good teamwork. <laughs> okay, next question. Uh, in 1969, humans did something they had never done before. They went to the moon. They stepped on the moon. Okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wait, that yeah. wasn't the question. <laughs> that was, that was, oh, man. You're right on. <laughs> but my question for you is, who was the news anchor that was kind of boosting that whole affair. Walter Cronkite. It was. Walter Cronkite. Yeah, yes. I got that one too. Teamwork. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should get, You know, I should probably be like, Rob, give us a moment while we uh, deliberate with my team. <laughs> it's Walter Cronkite. Okay, it's Walter yeah, it's Cronkite. Cronkite. That's how we should be doing it. 
Our next question is the first Macy's Parade, which started in 1924, was uh, broadcast locally in 1939 to New York affiliates. But the first national broadcast happened under what president? Let me deliver it with my team. Yeah. I don't know. Me neither. <laughs> Why do we only deliberate under these circumstances? <laughs> um, okay, so so you said the first local one was when? 1939. And then it was... Right, well, that was FDR. It was early FDR, right? Okay. And I will tell you that it was suspended for the latter years of the war. Does that mean that it was after the war? I'm just saying... That it was. Tell us. <laughs> yes, it was. It was a pre. It was an antebellum Thanksgiving Day parade. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. First, I mean, it gotta be after the '60s, because that's that's what he was saying. It was like widely. Yeah. Uh, maybe Nixon. Nixon's too late. Oh no. Pre JFK. No, 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 because he lost to JFK prior yeah. before he was president. Let's JFK. say LBJ. No. Yeah, Not sure. OBJ. Oh, it was actually it was actually surprisingly early by oh. my standards. It was oh. 1952. Wow, it was Eisenhower or oh. not yet? Not yet. Oh, yeah, okay. it was like the last months of Truman. Oh, 1952. Oh, for the for a very small amount of 1952, he had been elected president for the next year after yes. inauguration. He was in fact the president elect. I okay, believe, yes. as I said, obviously. <laughs> I mean, come on. There we go. Two questions to go. Question number seven. So the, the 25th Academy Awards uh, were held on March 19th, 1953, uh, but it was the first to be televised nationally. So about the 25th Oscars, Gary Cooper won Best Actor for what quintessential Western movie whose name inspired a Jackie Chan movie almost 50 years later? The year was 1953. 53. So 2003 Jackie Chan movie. Or slightly less. 2000 Jackie Chan movie. I want to say sure. this is one of the ones where he's like, it's like a buddy cop movie. So I, I will say that as part of the question, it was a quintessential Western, the original It's movie. Shanghai Noon. And then therefore... Oh. What was the other part of the question? The Gary Cooper movie that he actually won for. Shanghai Noon. <laughs> <laughs> it was a remake. <laughs> but I want the name of the real so movie. So High Noon. Yes, High okay. Noon. Thank you. <laughs> Shanghai Noon. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> All right, and my final question about broadcast history. Uh, on October 14th, 1999, an episode of what six-season CBS medical drama is the first, excluding documentaries, to, on U.S. television network, use the S-word? What's the S-word? <laughs> it is for our, for our is it the, viewers. Is it, what, is it the regular S-word? Yes, I, okay. I believe okay. so. <laughs> okay. So what year was it again, sorry? In 1999. It's, it's gotta be ER, right? I mean, I guess a, that's a, a thin, I mean, I'm trying to think of any other medical drama around that time. I think around that time, that would be right. You're definitely in the right <laughs> vein, and I will say, actually... Oh, yeah? In the right vein of <laughs> medical drama? <laughs> and ER was actually the second show, not just the second medical drama, second, second show, show to, to do it in prime time. Probably. Was it South Park? <laughs> so, South Park oh, made their 2001 episode in yeah. which they used the word 200 times yeah. in response to the backlash that this show got for doing it in 1999. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't have any idea. I think we got to give us <laughs> Question 8 is always the hard one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, it is Chicago Hope. What? I've never heard of that in my life, Rob. <laughs> yeah, that's um, it's a show. That? No, it's a show. They're no, that's, you're, that's, you're full of S word. <laughs> <laughs> I call bull S word. Yeah. 
They said that it was artistically the truest way that they could answer the question. A doctor had a botched surgery, and his superiors were grilling him on what had happened. And unable to uh, articulate his response, he just said, this happens. <sighs> well, I mean, being a doctor, it's a double-edged S-word. Yeah. <laughs> Get it? (laughs) Sword. (laughs) I really, I feel like that deserved more. That was better than I got. It's not. It's not gonna make. It's not gonna make the final cut. But I just want recognition from you guys. That S word is also sword. You're falling on your S word now. So that's my quiz. All right. Solid. That was great. That was a lot of fun from from our end. I hope you, the listener at home, enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, If you have anything to contribute for us to think about. Reach out to us on at FaxMachinePod on Twitter or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next time.